Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
most of our doctrines can only be many times we have doctrine we only believe it as far as we can see it and so we don't then tie it together to see how this affects this doctrine and what oftentimes we don't understand is there's a reason why it's it's near impossible when a foundation is crumbling and just can't really be used for it to be uh, for you to repair that or replace it or to do whatever and it not affect the foundation where you see it because these things are tied together so as we it, it just means if I'm being honest with you the reason we haven't had a conversation about hell that we haven't had this because I could no longer abide by the idea that we were saying who God was was good and yet he was going to burn people forever. Do you see this? I mean, at some point, some of our doctrines, we don't really walk out. And the real challenge is because many of our doctrines we believe don't affect us as long as we're in the group. The problem is the people in the other group think that they're in the group. And that we're not in the group. So I'm sitting here saying God's good and everybody else is going to burn. But that doesn't affect me because I'm in the group. And the other group is saying God's good and everybody else is going to burn. And I'm not in their group. You get where I'm going. So a lot of it, what I have to do is go back through now that we've figured it out, he's better than we ever as that's come, then we have to step back a little bit because um, one of the things that we're doing right now, we're going to talk about this. We're getting ready to marry the two calendars together. The two offerings are coming up. Um, so we're going to double our, um, we're going to get married and we're going to double our business calendars, all of that kind of stuff. And what we've been talking for the three of us is, I'm going to use fake numbers, but let's say, um, let's say a million dollar business. And if your business was operating with weekly calendars and your tax cycles and, and um, um, your, your team size and employee count at a million-dollar level, you can't then keep those same practices and processes and employee count and you try to operate at a $2 million level. Does that make sense? You've got to make some adjustments. It's, it's, I mean, you can't put a Lamborghini engine on a go-kart frame. You just can't do it. You can for a little while, so you try to corner it, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's there's just that kind of thing, and that's what begins to happen with our doctrines. So I'd like to start with this simple question. Have we always known God as well as we've known each other? And I don't mean that, I mean just honestly. Well, I think the obvious answer is no, <laughs> right? We've not always known God as well as we've known each other. Hopefully he's getting clearer and clearer. Every theologian that I know of agrees that the revelation of God is progressive in nature and even more specifically the progressive nature of understanding regarding the biblical text. So every theologian that I know of agrees that, that revelation both of who he is and specifically of scripture is progressive in nature. Steer a little there a little, line upon line. We have better understanding than we had. The only difference between some that, and there's terminology in this, I won't bore you with it. Um, I'll, we'll deal with it on Saturday when we meet and get to talk about it and all that stuff. Uh, but um, so the, there is two really different groups. Everybody agrees that it's progressive. 
everybody agrees that Christianity and, and revelation of who God is, whether through the scripture or through experience, is progressive in nature. The only disagreement lies in some people believe that it was progressive revelation that was fully revealed in the first century with the early church fathers and that it was fully revealed at that time. So there are many theologians and church leaders that actually believe that the first century is after the disciples of the apostles. Anybody know what I mean? So it's kind of funny to me that they call them early church fathers like Irenaeus and Polycarp and some of these guys. It's interesting to me that that they call them early church fathers. They were actually the disciples of the disciples. So Paul's disciple was Polycarp, who was a millionaire. Okay? And so it's it's an interesting thing that we call them fathers because technically speaking, they weren't fathers. The fathers were the 12. Okay? And then you have the next group of Jews. Well, um, a lot of people believe that that next tier, since those were the only ones that learned from people who actually walked with Jesus. It's, it's like the degrees of separation, right? And so they be- believe that, well, you walk with Jesus, so the people who learn from somebody who walked in Jesus can have a better understanding of the text or a better understanding of who God is. But, but that's as far as it's proper to go. I believe that it's still progressive. I wouldn't say that most of us in the room do. And so what begins to happen is what there's this ebb and flow naturally that you find all through time about who God is and what the scripture says. And, and I would love to tell you that it's always going forward um, in, a, um, in a linear type fashion. But the reality is the church's picture of who God is has regularly taken three steps forward and often two steps back. Sorry, that's just the reality. And I'm, I'm excited of that. Our culture does that in many ways. If you look, if there's a large progressive squeeze, every time there's been a large immigration movement, there's also been a large nationalist movement that followed it that said, if you don't look like me, leave us alone. And we don't have to be a historian to know that. Okay? Um, you know, we, we have uh, the idea of on one end you have immigration goes up and you have churches say, build that wall. I mean, it's just what we do. There's always a swing. It's a pendulum that goes this way and this way. And hopefully, pray to God, we always remain balanced. Because neither swing is probably right. That kind of happens with the Lord. And you find that over and over and over again. There would be a, a faith movement that would come in. And it would create, and then it would go too far. And it would be out here where you're leaning and standing and all black humanity. And then it would swing back to a balance. Do you realize how amazing it is that in the early 1900s, the charismatic movement hit, this thing went full on bonkers where people were way out there. There was no form. It was people could do whatever they wanted. And and uh, it, those were the outliers. It swung back this way where nobody wanted anything to do with it. Now it's the biggest charismatic, whether they call themselves that or not, but people who allow themselves to feel the move of the spirit, it's the fastest growing Protestant movement in the world. Now, most of them don't belong to Pentecostal churches, so they don't necessarily identify as Pentecost with that terminology. But it's that swing. So what you find is that even though there's this swing back and forth, God is always moving things forward. The gravity of who God is is always moving things forward. Over the next several weeks, we're going to discuss this concept 
he specifically tells the Levites the danger that I believe has been conflicted with in our theology and doctrine for many years. In many ways, our framework has been to establish doctrine, well, not our framework, but throughout time, the framework has been to establish doctrines of certainty. And I think that means a lot to this group. So so I want to define what I mean by that. Doctrines of certainty are things where you put a period at the end of the definition. Where it's either you believe you're either in this or you're out. You don't put a, uh, does anybody know what an ellipsis is? Right? Dot, dot, dot on a, on a screen. So, or have you ever on your cell phone? If, you're, if you've got an iPhone, you know exactly what I mean. And if somebody sends you a text and then below that text is a dot, dot, dot that's happening, what does that mean? Well, it either means they forgot to close out that conversation or it means they have something more to say, right? And so oftentimes, if you're like me, when you're in the middle of a conversation, which I was not, because uh, I see the dot, 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 and I'm like sitting there looking. And after a couple minutes, I'm like, you're not saying anything on my phone. I think that you've just got drunk. Uh, uh, but but there's that typically that thought that the dot, dot, dot means there's something more to say. And so what I believe this progressive understanding of who God is is that there's more to say. What we have tried to do is have doctrines of certainty. Doctrines of certainty end everything with a period. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be doctrines of certainty. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that there isn't right and wrong. I'm not saying that there aren't certain things that we need to be certain about. But I am saying that if we don't recognize, I think I've I've said this before, that every mystery revealed should present itself with three mysteries. Every real revelation of a deeper understanding of who God is should provide itself three new mysteries. And a deeper uncovering of who God is is there. It's an awesome one, an opportunity, because every time God speaks to you, it's always going to be one of two things. Every revelation from God is either to be a springboard or an invitation to know Him in a more specific way, or it's to clarify a way you've been knowing Him that you just don't understand. It always does one of those two things. It's never so you can walk away and write it down in your diary and feel better about yourself. It's just not. It's so that we can either clarify what it's been being, that's a new thing, or it's an invitation to a measuring line that helps us understand. And so doctrines of certainty were always established with good intention, but were always constructs that were established to fill a void they could never fill. Doctrines of certainty are always put in a position that are never able to sustain and support itself. C.S. Lewis, the wonderful Scottish theologian, said, we came up with the concept of inerrancy because we needed another mediator between God and man other than Jesus. What I'm saying, what he's suggesting is, when we start saying that something is perfect and there's no more to come of it and no more can be understood, what we're trying to say is that Jesus isn't enough. And what we're trying to say is, I've got to have this certain doctrine that says this is how God is and this is the now final mediator and 
struggle with that to God. Let me be clear. If you struggle with a lean to see God, you look at Jesus always. Any element of the nature of God, you don't find in the nature of Jesus in that question. Jesus, I don't have notes. This is not me trying to quote anything. I hope that I'm quoting it. Jesus is perfect theology. This is what he says. Jesus is perfect theology. So what happens is most of our certainty doctrines about God are built upon foundations of fear. Now, you could argue that in some fear is based upon ego. there. Yes. 
It's it's like it's it, it's something he's never going to work faster than we can handle. God understands. I don't understand, but God understands that humanity is slowly moving forward and evolving in our awareness of who God is. We started way back here with the craziness of child sacrifice and all this stuff, and and I'm uh, I'll just talk about this another time. But you realize that that's why God had to tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then stop there. What was he trying to say? I never wanted child sacrifice in the first place. He was changing the game. He was trying to move things forward. And so what you find all through the scriptures is simply don't be afraid. This, uh, the reason for this is so vital for us to understand is because when we come up with religious doctrines and certainties, we are coming up with a system we can trust rather than a relationship we can trust. Our systems of certainty are designed as constructs to fill the place in us that's only supposed to be filled with relationships. And there is no system that has the capacity to, 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 to fill the void of relationships. This is why God is not religious. God is relationship. But what happens is we don't really like relationships because relationship requires vulnerability. So it's much easier for us to, in place of vulnerability, reinstitute discipline. Because discipline is something that I can have a system of certainty that says if I'm disciplined enough to do X, Y, Z, God and I are good. Rather than have vulnerability, which is relationship, which is a big old question mark that requires you to be a seed that goes in the ground and does what? That's the difference. So the concept of vulnerability and flesh is, is completely intrinsic to who God is because God is relationship. God is relationship. I may actually on some basis, the very first full-scale sermon I've ever done, my wife will have to come help me. Maybe. Maybe. I'm trying to just let her come and tell me to bring her stuff to the altar. But I might. And one of the bases of, of this point is it, it, God is relationship. He just is. He's completely relational. The concept was so important about relationship that when Jesus, speaking to Jesus, that when he spoke about the age after the cross, he explained that the Holy Spirit would be our comforter that would come and lead us into all truth. So the idea that Jesus, uh, that there was going to be something that was going to happen after Jesus that we didn't yet understood, a, a something that wasn't a, a, a defined definite concept, that it wasn't all done. It was so important to Jesus that he said, I'm going to leave after the cross. You think that there's anything that is going to make us just change it up? It's the cross. Nope. Not. Actually, Jesus said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to give you something that's more beautiful than you've ever had. And that's the Holy Spirit relationship with community. Spirit and community are what Jesus gave us. And he said it's better to leave than absent. Or we could have with him one-on-one. -on -one. What is that? 
so Jesus gives us this. The context for this passage might be one of the most important things Jesus ever said. John 16, there are many more things I would like to talk to you about, but you can't bear them now. Now, think about this. So this is Jesus talking. Jesus says to the disciples, you know what? There are many other things I'd like to explain to you, but you can't bear them right now. So when I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to lead you into the ever-uncovering centuries for us to get it right. Now, am I okay with that? Not really, but is that God's fault? Or is that humanity that's evolving? See, Jesus constantly moved the, 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 the stakes forward, if you will. Uh, he constantly, it's like, it's like football, you're moving the chains, so that's what they say with offense. As long as you're moving the chains, Jesus was always moving the chains. Jesus came to talk to them about divorce. Did Jesus completely say that you should never get divorced? No. He didn't. Sorry. Now, do I believe that that has continued to evolve and we have a better understanding now than we had then? Absolutely. But did Jesus move the chains on divorce? And in doing so, did Jesus contradict Scripture to do it? Yep. He absolutely did. Now, do I believe that he contradicted the intent of the scripture. No. He didn't contradict what God was saying. He contradicted the way they had read it. He contradicted the way they had used it. He contradicted the way they had applied it to their own cultural doctrine that said if they wanted to put ten women in there, they could. And if they wanted to have the scripture out in society, they could just say, well, I'm tired of this tearing on new model. It was okay. And Jesus said, no. And yet, still evolve. So Jesus said the way this is supposed to work is not that we're confident, but it's that when we see a new side of God, we go back to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide us into a greater understanding of what that truth is. And then with the Holy Spirit, when Jesus is at work, we come back to the Scriptures. better. That's the whole point. So, what happens is, over time, um, excuse me, what that says is that understanding about who God is and what the kingdom really looks like, among other things, is something that will be slowly revealed over a long period of time. Almost like a time release film in our system. Over time, as the body can metabolize it. So what happens is there are many things that he says, I wanted to tell you. Do I think Jesus wanted to make a statement on treatment of women? 
Absolutely. Do I think Jesus wanted to make a statement on slavery? Absolutely. Do I think Jesus wanted to make a statement on a lot of things? Absolutely. He said it. There are a million things I'd like to tell you, but he can't handle it. But then the Holy Spirit, he keeps moving forward. The reality is it will always cause us to look at things again. And it's not because God is changing. It's because humanity is changing. Our lens is changing. He's not changing. Another example of this is in the uh, word of Jesus. You have heard it said, but I say to you. I think this passage is actually on your uh, sheet, Matthew 5. Your ancestors taught you, well, you've heard it said, this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, I'm saying this. Guys, if that's not Jesus overturning Scripture, I don't know what is. I mean, if you can if you can find a better way to read that, please let me know. But Jesus is saying, the Scripture says this. This is what the ancestors taught you. But I'm saying this. Why did that happen? Because they're moving forward. I, it's just that simple. If you find a better way, please enlighten me. But we can't, we can no longer turn a blind eye to these things. Because they're happening. They're just lining up. God's better than we ever was. Jesus came to say that God's better than they thought he was. This is the beauty of our walk with God. We are not changing the scripture. We're just seeing it better than we've seen it before. We're not throwing out the Old Testament. We're just reading it better than we've read it before. We aren't making God fit what we think. We're simply saying, but in my heart, all along, I had a feeling he was better than I knew. The title of this sermon series is, Who Is This? And this comes from a wonderful passage in the Psalms. Some of you probably already picked up on that. Um, Psalm 24, it's on your sheets. We don't need to read it, um, but it's, it's a, a great um, a, a great psalm. At the end of it, he says this in verse 8, Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Who is this king of glory, the Lord of hosts? So the reason I wanted to use that scripture is this. Since the beginning of time, we have been asking the same primary question. What is God like, or who is this? The same question. Who is this king of glory? Do you realize that's the same question that we've been asking since Adam and Eve? In fact, I would like to argue with you, uh, that, or suggest to you, and I'd like to argue with how we've read it, that Genesis, when the enemy proposes the fall, can you notice he never describes the tree or the fruit? If you're going, I, I've spent my life in sales of some kind. One of the things that I know you're to do is to describe the features and benefits of what that person is getting. He never talks about how good the fruit is. He never talks about how good the tree or the tree is. He talks about God. That's why we have to ask the question, who is this king of glory? Because he's not like us. 
in the very within the fall of humanity, the question was, who is God? Is God someone that would withhold something from you that would be good? That was the that was what the enemy was proposing. Obviously, we know that we recognize what he was proposing was there's something good out there and God's not letting you have it. And so the idea is, who is God? That has been the question all through. And this is the same question that the psalmist writes. Who is this? And it's my suggestion, and we'll talk about this later, that, that all throughout Scripture, we oftentimes get, find people wrestling with who is God or what is he like, and we oftentimes find them not getting it quite right. They, they, they were doing the best with what they had. But in most cases, they were doing it similarly to what we do today, where they were translating and interpreting who God was in light of their cultural surroundings. So as is the case, Jesus said, here's what I'm really like. Right? And he didn't tell them to go destroy the Amalekites. He didn't say, okay, disciples, let's get sorted up because we're going to go deal with the Hittites and the Amorites today. Could say the wrong thing. He said, This is the good news. Jesus showed us where we had it off. Here's what it really is. And so that idea has been all throughout time the idea of wrestling. In fact, that's the name Israel, to wrestle with God. Do you realize that we probably have just not done enough of that? The doctrine of certainty tells you you're not supposed to wrestle with God because questions are bad. The name God gave his first chosen people was the ones who would wrestle with God. And he said, those are my people. Why? Because he wants us to wrestle with him. I'm not saying he, he wants us to, to question who he is, although, quite frankly, I don't think he's offended by it. I don't think he was, I do not ever think there's been an atheist that said, God, I don't believe you exist because God's been offended. Because he created us with the free will to even have that thought. And you know, the other thing he said is, you're in me anyway. My being is holding you together. That didn't really change a whole lot. So I guess to some degree, what God looks back and just says, sorry about your luck. And so within this idea, what you have to understand is there's always got to be a wrestling with who God is. In the last few years, there's been an incredible movement, which in my opinion has been led by worship into a better awareness of God's goodness. This has been revolutionary to those who have embraced it, as many of us were believing that God was someone to be afraid of. I remember reading a story in a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Good About Grace? It's an incredible book. Um, and in the story, he talks about this woman that he met while he was doing ministry in Eastern Europe. This woman was a prostitute and was a drug addict. And in fact, she um, had several children. And um, the, the, I won't go into the details of it because you'll, it'll wreck you for the next year just not being able to get back uh, to the rest of the country. But, um, but uh, he was sharing the gospel with her and invited her to church and her response said struck him because her response is I already feel bad enough about myself why would I want to go to church to deal with that why would 
so within this, most of his time was with Potiphar. So Exodus 33 um, is the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. I'm glad we finally were able to get to the text that we're going to look at. Exodus 33 is the story of Moses who stuck with a rock. Many of you know this story. If you've been around for any time, you probably know this story because it's been so sensationalistically gory. And it's an incredible story. Um, Moses um, was just phenomenal. I mean, there's so many things about Moses. When he used to come out on the opening, the, one of the first guys called the prophet, um, it, it was just phenomenal. And what I love about this story is that I think it shows us the difference between how we see things and how God sees things. And I'd like to make a few suggestions to you through this that specifically endorse the fact that God is good and he's always been good. Now, going forward from this week is where it gets hard. Because we're going to look at some texts that you've been told and that I've been told would say that he's something other than good. But what we're going to do is you don't go to that text that shows God trying to destroy a village and then try to figure out why God is still good from there. You start with he's good and then you read the text. Make sense? You start with who he is and then read the story. So in this story, Moses says to the Lord in verse uh, I'm going to say this in verse 7. See, you say to bring up this people, and I don't know where you're going to send me. Will you go with us if we go? That's the first question that Moses asked him. <laughs> a great question. And God said, yes, I'll go with you. So Moses is thinking, hey, I'm batting a thousand. God's got a question. He said he'd do it. Can I be two for two? And so he asked God another question. Show me your glory. And what does God say? I will allow my glory and my fire and my fury to pass before you. I will allow what? My goodness to pass before you. So in the scripture... There is a connection to the glory of God and the goodness of God. And I would argue that there is a way to read this text that can help us better understand how God sees things as opposed to how we see things. A simple definition of the goodness of God, and this is my definition. I came up with this uh, when I was writing. I, I'm not saying this is all encompassing verbiage. I'm trying to get it into your mind. But... Um, a simple definition for the goodness of God is beloved identity and grace. That's the goodness of God. Beloved identity and grace. If it is true that the glory of God is made fully alive, there's a quote that's by St. Irenaeus. So St. Irenaeus said the glory of God is made fully alive. If that is true, could it be said that what man fully alive is is someone fully exposed to God's goodness. I'm, I, I, now I know I'm getting philosophical and theological here, so let me say it a different way. If St. Irenaeus says that the glory of God is made fully alive, so the goal of God, his glory being fully manifest, is man fully alive, 
and we understand that his glory is his goodness. So when we ask for, for glory, God says, what I'm going to give you, I'm not giving you something else. I'm giving you what you're asking for, my fullness, which I'm defining as goodness. So if goodness is that, is it not possible that the fullness of what God intends for us, man fully alive is his glory, is it not possible that what man fully alive actually looks like is the full embrace that he's given? Is it not possible that us being whole looks like us wholly embracing what he's given and living in that awareness? How many times in how many worship services have we heard the pastor cry out to God that we've heard it in churches? We want your glory. Show us your glory. We want your glory. Show us your glory. Yet if somebody came to the mic and said his goodness is here, everybody would say, yeah, that's nice, but we want your glory. goodness. That perspective says that when Moses said from his vantage point that he wanted the glory, at that time the word would have been associated with fear or weightiness felt by the presence of a dignitary. So at the time the word glory, and I know we have all these other definitions for the word glory and we've got kabod and we've got uh, 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 shekinah and we've got all these things. I know that. I've taught it. I get it. I've spent hours and hours and hours the word etymology studying. I understand it. But what I'm saying is when you don't look at the cultural context of the word, you still aren't going to get it. Because you're still looking at a definition now of a word 2,000 years ago that still makes no sense. The word glory primarily was a word that was associated to the fear and awe you felt in the presence of a king or an emperor. And it was mostly you being impressed with the fact that you could fish you like a bug at a given moment. It was the fact that when you walked into the court, they actually would crawl on their face because they felt like if they did anything, if the king was even in a bad mood, he would catch a bug. And so the glory that Moses was talking about, he was directly associating it to everything he knew. Culturally, what he knew was Pharaoh. Where was Moses raised? What were the gods always doing? Killing people. Hello. I mean, do we see this? This is what they were always doing. And and on behalf of the gods, you remember whenever Moses, the whole, why was Moses put in a basket in the first place? Because on behalf of the gods, what were they going to do? Kill the kids. So there was this association within the idea of glory that was more of a fear-based awe. And what when, so when Moses is used to that in culture, what he's thinking about is, there's, there's a weightiness that comes with that, that Pharaoh had armies that he had. He was a man of power and of might, and the gods represented that. And so what Moses was saying is, show me that, keeping in mind what he had just asked him is, God had just asked Moses to lead a ragtag group of a some odd million people who had never lived on their own or even had to fend for themselves into the wilderness against all these ites. Moses said, will you go with us? And God said, yes. And what do you think Moses was actually asking him when he said, show me your glory? Do you think he was asking for gold teeth and feathers to fly? What would have been most important? 
Jesus was leading millions of people into a death trap wilderness populated by heathenish armies that were um, weaponized to the point and to kill them at a moment's notice. And so his first question is, will you go with us? And God says, yes. And he says, I want to see what you're capable of. I want to sense and see how powerful you are that your might will be able to protect me because you've decided you're going to do something for me. I thought Pharaoh's court was in danger. You're causing me to walk into a death trap. I want to know that the God that I'm serving is the most powerful, that your might and your power are the same. What is God with us on this one? You give us your might. Now, it has, um, in many of our circles, this would be, um, the glory would be associated with the anointing felt in worship, right? When we sing, we cry, we call God, we dance, we whatever. Um, and it's great. I, I love all that stuff. And I, I please, Lord, do it, right? I, I totally give it all, all that stuff. But you do realize that all of the shaking and the dancing and the crying and the shouting and the falling down is all of those are just indicators of the presence of his goodness. But we feel like that his glory comes in a room and I shake and I cry and I fall. And the more I shake and cry and fall, the stronger his glory is in the room. Because we've misread what the glory is in the first place. His glory is his goodness. His power and his might and his force and his authority is completely defined by goodness. And if that doesn't sound countercultural, then you don't understand it. It is absolutely countercultural. In the same way that Jesus being one who was going to turn the world upside down and lead a revolution by dying sounded countercultural. You see, in Moses' day, the more power your God had, the more it was feared. God was trying to move that forward. All of the stuff about goodness, all of the stuff that we know, they're, they're demonstrations of what his real nature is. His intention is to take this into a higher and higher degree. Is it possible that this goodness was so significant that people couldn't even comprehend it? And I don't have time to go into this because we could do a whole sermon on just this concept. But is it possible that the goodness of God was so great that the people couldn't comprehend it? Because they were living in a day and age in Eastern society that all they knew was the gods that you feared, the gods that cautioned their children. Keeping in mind that Abraham never questioned when God said, kill your only son. Why? Because that's all he did. Here's a scarier question. Isaac never questioned. And I know that in all of our Sunday schools, the little Velcro boards we had made it look like he was 10. They estimate he was 30. At the least, he was an adult. You want to know why he didn't question? Because he knew the culture feared. Goodness. When the gods demanded your child, get it. Abraham never thought twice. Why? That's what you did. That's the most normal thing in the world. And so in the culture that the people had, the most normal thing in the world was that God was angry and God was something to be afraid of. And so is it possible that the people couldn't comprehend that God was good? This is why when God invited the elders of Israel to go up into heaven and to eat with him at his table, they said, we aren't going back. Why? Because they couldn't process it. 
that God would be good. They couldn't process the concept that God would want them to eat at the table with him. They couldn't process the idea. In fact, many people are now suggesting this is why Moses veiled his face. The glory that shone was that God was good and he had to hide his face that had seen the real goodness of God because the people couldn't handle it. He wasn't hiding his face because the Shekinah glory would cause their heads to explode like an Indiana Jones. You know, when they take the cover off the Ark of the Covenant, all of a sudden the priests go, ah, you know, that's not what the point was. The point was they couldn't deal with the fact that this God that they were serving was really that good and he wasn't capricious and angry. And so they said, we don't know how to deal with that. You talk to him and you just tell us what he says. Because the only face-to-face encounter they'd ever had with God was dinner. Are you kidding me? The encounters they had with God through these gods, everybody else's gods, was that God was taking their children so they would have food. This was absolutely revolutionary, and they couldn't process it. So we have to understand that everything about God starts with his goodness and his love. And he's always been trying to get us there. We were the ones that couldn't get there, not him. God didn't get saved somewhere in between Malachi and Matthew. God did not suddenly have this this transition that happens, an altar experience. You know, we think that when Jesus led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, he went down to hell and and, and preached the gospel that God was in attendance with him. What happened is God was always trying to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He was always trying to lead us into, I love you. But he had to start with, don't be afraid. Because everything about them, everything around them told them to be afraid of God. And if I'm being really honest, that still exists in our culture more than we'd like to admit. The idea that God isn't always good still exists in our culture more than we would like to admit. And here's another thing. What if for the rest of our lives, we don't, because uh, how many times have, have you had these weird thoughts in your mind, Mary Beth? Our, our good brother and um, Lydia Radoff can only imagine trying to tackle with this microbe, right? Uh, that you just forever on your knees would fall and do all that kind of stuff. You just kind of have that thought. Come on. Mercy me. They're the worship band in heaven, just in case anybody's curious. Um, but um, the uh, the reality of it is, when you're talking about what you get to experience in the background of the rest of your life, it's terrifying. You just couldn't think it through. And the glory of God, it's in the story right now, the glory of God is you engaged in his goodness to such a degree that you're seated in beloved Alexandria, knowing who God is. And this is why when Paul then later says that we, as we develop, we develop from glory to glory, how about this? What if our entire life and all through Enoch was about the development from goodness to goodness to goodness? uncovered in his doctrine and you are better than you thought you were. Always and if you look at scripture and you look at history, you cannot find an example of that. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.